You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. We're launching a new season of the McKinsey Podcast starting this fall with fresh content. Between now and then, we're rebroadcasting popular episodes from different McKinsey podcasts. Today, you'll hear about the ways in which technology will continue to revolutionize retail from the McKinsey on Consumer and Retail podcast. I'm your host, Monica Toriello. The first thing that I think any organization should do is know what data it's got, in what format is it, and what data externally could augment it, because data is a major, major failing for most organizations. Hi, everyone. That voice you just heard is John Straw, an expert on disruptive technology and our guest on today's episode. He'll talk to us about the possibilities that data and technology bring to the retail sector. In the past 18 or so months, you've probably bought something online, paid for something with your smartphone, or used a retail app. And all of those are examples of just how crucial technology is becoming in the retail and consumer sector. For years, McKinsey's been talking and writing about retailers and consumer companies needing to evolve into technology companies. But the COVID-19 pandemic has truly brought technology front and center. E-commerce, online customer service, contactless payment solutions, these have been lifelines, especially for retailers that had to close their stores during lockdowns. And today we're excited to have John Straw as our guest. He has worked with some of the world's leading companies to turn technology into competitive advantage. John is a senior advisor to McKinsey, and he himself has started and sold four technology businesses. And he's written a book about disruptive technology. So glad to have you here, John. And what I'd like you to do first is maybe clarify for our listeners, what does it mean to be a senior advisor to McKinsey? What is it that you do? Well, I, I, um, up until COVID, I spent most of my time on a plane, um, including going to places like Australia for lunch. I run around the world talking to clients about mostly AI uh, and the Internet of Things and across all sorts of sectors, across all sorts of industries. And it's just been fascinating. Um, I mean, I've done four startups in the past 37 years, and that's been uplifting as well. But I think actually, if I went back to time, I'd have actually rather spent more time with the firm 25 years ago, because the the, the the range of the broadness and the range of knowledge that I've acquired just by being a senior advisor has been quite eye opening. Um, so I've, I, I have got this lovely balance between startup, venture capitalist uh, and McKinsey. I just like to have done more of it, but I can't now because I'm in my 60s. So it's a little bit, there's, a, there's some few limitations there. Well, speaking about the things that you've learned over the past four or five years, you know, you wrote a book about seven years ago, um, and there's been lots that has happened since then, including a global pandemic. So looking back at what you said in that book, what did you get wrong? Or is there anything that's played out differently from what you expected? Yes. Um, so let me be specific over that. I, I, I was a, an enthusiast of scaled up um, three-dimensional printing. Um, I did really think that we'd see a whole slew of new products coming into the marketplace. Material science was going to change the way that what we could actually do with these printers, but it hasn't happened in the way that I expected it to, to, to do. So that was a, that was a miss. The, the omission that I made, the critical omission, was quantum computing. I'm sort of quite. It's going to take about twenty years to actually unfurl, um, but in twenty years, definitely stuff will have happened, and I'm sort of quite glad that I'm not going to be around actually. <laughs> but it, it's exciting but terrifying at the same time because we are about to work, walk through a door that we have got no view of anything that's actually on the other side. 
Yeah, I don't know about not being around for. I mean, you know, eighty is the new forty. <laughs> that's that's fabulous. I feel so much better now. Now let's switch gears a little bit. I've heard you describe yourself as a technonomist. Yes. So like a technologist and economist, which to me sounds like you help companies think not just about disruptive technology, yeah. but also how to make the economics work, yeah. right? How to make it scalable yeah. and profitable. And as you know, it's a tremendous challenge for the consumer sector right now, yeah. where there's so many compelling use cases for disruptive technology, right? Whether it's using AI to improve customer service or, or advanced robotics to make operations more efficient in stores and in warehouses. And it, it can be hard to know where to invest and what will actually pay off. Um, what's the biggest mistake that you see retailers and consumer companies making when it comes to investment decisions about disruptive technology? I think that the first mistake is just because a piece of artificial intelligence technology isn't generating a huge amount of profit doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy it. I remember I was on the board of a British bank about five or six years ago, and I was talking to the chief exec regularly about credit scoring, which is something AI can really help with. And, the, and I said, we, I found an Indian company we should buy. And he said, how much was it? And I said, it's likely to be about $250 million. And he turned around and he said, so what's the revenue? And I said, I can't imagine it's much more than half a million. He turned around and he said, you want me to go to my shareholders and say that I've just spent a quarter of a billion dollars on something that had nothing to my P&L. He said, it's just not going to happen. And I think that's, that, that's the majority of the problems there is actually the unwillingness, perhaps the fear of actually investing with something that doesn't automatically bring a, a load of cash onto your balance sheet. And I do believe that the tech is is there now it's now about the willingness to actually implement it and make the investment necessary to implement it but we do have to take these sort of things into consideration are there certain metrics that companies or business leaders typically overemphasize or on the flip side that they overlook that they should actually be looking at but they're not okay so um i'm going to put my venture capitalist hat on here I'm going to put that hat on at this moment in time. Right? I'm, going to, I'm going to take my McKinsey hat off and put my VC hat off. A hat on. I had a fantastic expression from Silicon Valley about four or five years ago, and I was talking to an investor, and he turned around. And he said, "You know what I really like?" He said, "I'd like from one of my starters, I like a dollar in revenue with a hundred users engaged a thousand times a day with the product, rather than a thousand dollars in revenue with a hundred users engaged once." Because that's where I'm going to place my bets in terms of that level of engagement. If the engagement level is that high, you know that you've got the product right. Whereas in the latter case, you know that you've got your marketing right. Well, the marketing doesn't scale. Um, so that's that's the way that's the way that I'd be making look at investment decisions. You might want to try and probably apply the same rules actually corporately, but obviously there's a, a few more considerations you have to take into into account. But to me is you know when you're trialing stuff and, and the firm has been you know obviously a major proponent of um agile working prototyping and i've done quite a lot of prototyping myself it's when you get it into the hands of the consumer that the consumer's engagement with it becomes really high really quickly that's where you know to, how, how to place your bets you know i asked you earlier about the biggest mistakes that companies are making um, on the reverse side of that, what are they doing right? Like, do you have a favorite recent story about, you know, a retailer or consumer company that made the right bet or, or that, you know, that illustrates the potential or that sort of serves as a shining example for other companies to follow? Yeah, uh, IKEA. Um, it has to be IKEA because they are so ferocious uh, in, in their innovation. And I remember when the iPhone... Eight came out. I think it came out with um, XR, extended reality, built into the phone for the very first time. 
And within what felt like a minute, IKEA had announced that they had an app that uses the uh, uses it. Now, w- one of the big problems you've got with, 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 with high ticket retail is the fact that actually you can't try before you buy. Well, this particular facility allowed you to point your phone at, the, at any portion in the room and then overlay furniture from the catalogue, the IKEA catalogue, recolor it, position it, switch it around, whatever. So you could solve that problem of trying before you buy. Okay. And then they got a little bit further forward because then what they started to do was that they found an AI startup that was able to measure a room and then actually start to think of, start to do positioning exercises with other rooms that it measured and other rooms that it actually seen to inspire the consumer about what a whole room might look like rather than just an individual per, uh, uh, piece of furniture. Uh, so they went and bought that company. So that's another one of the examples there um, of, of taking on board this cutting edge technology, not worrying about how it affects the PL, but how it's going to affect the value of the business to the consumer over what is a relatively short period of time now. And, and by the way, on that subject, on the XR subject, um, XR, augmented reality, virtual reality, whatever nomenclature you want to give it, um, hasn't really done much. But no, a couple of noticeable things happening. Firstly, um, Snap uh, bought a company that's ma- manufacturing its new range of uh, augmented XR glasses. Um, so they will come into the mainstream. But the really big news is that Apple next year are going to launch its XR glasses. It being Apple, it will be a category creator. And then all of a sudden, retailers can start to pile into this one because you will be able to try before you buy virtually across a massive range of, of products. That, I think, is is going to be huge for retail. Recently, we published an interview with the McDonald's CEO who said that he could imagine that as McDonald's builds out its digital capabilities, it could eventually become a platform that other companies could use, right? So here's a fast food chain that could soon be operating a digital business. Um, And, you know, recent McKinsey research has shown that business building has become a top priority for many CEOs across industries. And plus, it's also effective. So I'm going to read a stat from one of the McKinsey articles. It says some 74% of companies that chose business building as their main strategy grew at rates above the average of their industries. So it's effective, but it's also hard to sustain that success. So here's another stat. Only 24% of the new businesses in big corporations become viable large-scale enterprises. So you've had lots of experience helping, you know, incumbent companies build new businesses. What are the two to three most important pieces of advice that you have for CEOs on business building? It's hard. Um, It's really properly, properly hard. And I think that, you know, the first lesson that I would actually draw is make sure the early days that you've got something tangible to show. That show and tell is very important in the early days before you get any form of financial traction. Show, tell, engage. The really big one for me, which applies um, to new business, new product, new customer service, whatever build it actually is, and that's data. And let me not bang on about it too much, but I think that there's the, the first thing that I think any organization should do is know what data it's got, in what format is it, and what data externally could augment it? Because data is a major, major failing for most organizations. Firstly, a lot of organizations mostly know what data they've got, but I am continually surprised, but actually none of them are even close normally to 80% knowing what what data they've actually got. Secondarily, you've got the formatting uh, facility. In other words, can I put all of this data, all of my aggregated data into one data lake 
so that I can use machine learning techniques and learn stuff from it. And then the third part of it is what public data, what data could I bring in externally? And so it's knowing it's knowing what your data looks like, but then knowing what other data externally could augment that data um, to make it even more valuable than it currently is. So, so basically, you've really got to show and tell, but you've really got to understand your data sets. And what are the talent implications of that? Like, Ooh. what is what's <laughs> the... Well, I mean, I guess you could take that question in a bunch of different directions, right? But the, I guess at the most simple one, why is data a problem? Is it that retailers and consumer companies don't have enough data scientists, data engineers? Don't they have? Is it that they don't have the right people? Is it that they uh, are operating off legacy systems that have been around forever and don't talk to each other? Is it a combination of all of those things? Yeah, it's. I mean, this, it's a hybrid according to the individual company. You, you know, um, legacy IT um, is just terrifies me um, in terms of what it what it won't let companies do, what it won't let them innovate. Um, to me, however, uh, the biggest battleground is data scientists um, or the acquisition of data scientists. You know, and by the way, on that subject, we need more women data engineers, like in a lot, a lot more women data engineers. Actually, with COVID, the eruptions being caused by COVID, a lot of the data engineers want the excitement of working on something new and shiny but they also want the security of working for a major organization with very deep pockets. Um, and that's a really good combination to start selling into, you know, your perspective engineering base. How can retail or consumer as an industry attract those kinds of people when they are going to be competing against pretty much every other industry? You've got to have a vision. You know, when, when, you, when your HR people are sitting in front of your prospective data scientists, they've got to be able to actually take a vision that's come down from the chief exec and extol that vision and make it believable. Now, having said that, it's, it's really easy for me to sit there and say that, but you know, a, a shoe retailer, right, is going to find maybe slightly difficult to actually have a vision, which is going to attract your, your, your next level data scientists. However, I can guarantee you there's a startup out there somewhere with that vision. The question is, is could you, should you copy it? Could you copy it? Right. And then could you actually start to scale it from that particular point? To me, if you've got to compete in that, you've got to have a vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing that I've heard you say is that you won't invest in a company that's led by someone who's under 50. So a couple of follow up questions on that. One is why 50, which seems to be such an arbitrary number. <laughs> like, Why not 49? Or uh, um, So that's one one question. It's just a notional number. <laughs> but another is that shouldn't shouldn't you be looking at character traits rather than an age? Right. And what what is it that you mean by that? Yeah, yeah, I mean, and very and, and very good point. I'm going to stick to this one. Um, so, my two most successful investments um, are run by uh, fifty plus year olds. They've both been there, seen it, done it, watched the video, ironed the t-shirt, sort of thing. And if you work on the principle which I do, is that there is no such thing as a good idea, but just better execution. Then, actually, it's the executional side of it, and that's what. That loops back to the engagement piece I was talking about earlier on, you know, the thousand times engagement piece. That's what it's all about. Um, in terms of other traits beyond experience, oblique age. So Harvard did a study. Oof, it must be four or five years old now. And they looked at the personality traits of um, very successful entrepreneurs. And what they found was the largest group, and by I, I can't remember the criteria they used for successful entrepreneurs, but it was something like an exit north of $100 million. One of them was that they were dyslexic. 
30% of those of that group were dyslexic. Um, then really interestingly, the really successful ones had attention deficit disorder. And then the really, 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 really successful ones had attention deficit disorder and um, dyslexia at the same time. Now, I have dyslexia, right, despite the fact I actually had to have the book written for me because I, I, I struggle with, with, with looking at words. And we're on a mission and we're not going to listen to anything that anybody tells us because we will regard it. We're on this mission. Anything you're going to say is going to be is going to be negative. It's going to stop me actually doing it. So we just go for it. And the ADHD brings that level of energy in there that actually that, that winds the whole direction visionary thing up. I'm going to get on with this thing. I'm not going to listen to the fact that people are going to tell me it can't be done. I'm just going to do it. Um, so I do think I, I, I do think that those those are certainly personality indicators that um, for very successful um, entrepreneurs I've seen actually do work. But for me, you know, I like to invest in it. I, I like to invest in, not necessarily in good ideas. I just like to invest in better execution. That's so interesting. And we could devote an entire podcast episode to what makes a successful business person and leader. And maybe we will at some point. But for now, I'm going to ask you to be a futurist. I'd like you to paint a picture for us of what retail might look like in 2030. What does the tech-enabled retail customer experience look like? Somebody walks into a store in 2030, what does it feel like? What's different? What are some of the ways that they're interacting with technology in the store that they aren't able to do today? For retail, the opportunities are immense for showcasing. Um, you know, for XR capability, for showcasing, um, you know, for, for digitally enhanced shopping baskets, et cetera, et cetera. You know, robots in robots in shops. It's going to take us quite a bit of time to actually get used to that particular idea. But, you know, robo serving, enhanced robo serving, um, that's that's going to be with us um, and, and just will get better and better going forward. Holograms are going to be quite big. Um, by 2030. And I think that, that therefore your virtual assistants um, are going to be quite interactive at the moment. In time. Now, I don't think that they'll be brilliant by 2030. By 2035, I think they will be quite substantial. And I think what you'll end up doing is I think you're having you're going to have conversations with virtual assistants who have got no uh, limits to their knowledge and experience. And I'll give you an example of that. So when I was at Thomas Cook six, seven years ago, I did a mystery shopping tour. And I remember walking into one shop in Liverpool and there was one of the ladies who was probably in her early 60s. And I sat down, and I talked to her and during the conversation, I realized that and she told me that she'd been to Benidorm, which is a, a popular tourist destination in Spain. And she'd been 27 times in 30 years. And she knew where the best ladies toilet was in Benidorm. She knew where the best Chinese restaurant was in Benidorm. And I immediately sat there. I thought, I wonder if I can capture that knowledge before you retire. And that's one of the things that retailers perhaps ought to be thinking about doing better now is capturing that knowledge and then transferring that knowledge to their virtual um, assistants. So my challenge would be here to every retailer, when you take your best assistants, what do they do that can be translated into a virtual assistant at some point going forward? Again, it comes down to data and the readability of that data. I am surprised how relatively little chatbot technology seems to have found its way or not found its way into many consumer interactions. Um, and this is natural language engagements with consumers. Um, the reason I'm quite surprised is because 
I'm not expecting to have perfect conversations with a bot. Um, I am expecting to have a smart bot, which is very reactive, that triages what my problem is. The technology is there. A lot of organizations struggle with it because of the fact that they haven't got the data for the machine learning algorithms to be able to learn from in order to provide some of those. So it comes back to that data compatibility issue all over again. I do want to emphasize the fact um, to, to senior execs actually is what data have you got that you can read and use usefully? And then what the use cases for that particular data? And then what data could you bring in externally to add to it? Because data is going to become product. Data turns into product, whatever it happens to be. And I have seen so many organizations that think they've got great amounts of data and they realize they can't format that data, or extract it to put it into a data lake where it becomes usable. For me, that's where investments should be going right now, because then you're building the organization of the future, which is a data organization. So you're saying the most forward thinking retailers are already on that journey toward becoming data organizations and the rest will need to embark on that journey as well. I'm sure there's much more you can say on this topic, John, but we are out of time for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. And to our listeners, please visit McKinsey.com to read our latest insights on the future of retail, disruptive technology, and business building. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, visit us at McKinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.